The Electorette is brought to you by you. Seriously, it's listeners like you who inspire me to keep going. And if you're one of Electorette's newest Patreon supporters, I'd like to sincerely thank you. Your support means everything, and it helps Electorette continue to amplify the voices of women. And if you'd like to become a new supporter of Electorette, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash electorette. There are some great bonuses there for patrons at all levels. And again, I want to thank all of my listeners so much from the bottom of my heart. And I hope you enjoy the show. I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorette. Today, I have a conversation with Kelly Dittmar. She's a professor of political science at Rutgers University, and she's also a leading expert on gender and American political institutions. And today we discuss my favorite topic, women running for office. Kelly wrote the book, Navigating Gender Terrain, which examines political campaigns in a really unique way. So when a woman runs for office, how is her campaign strategy affected when it's crafted through a gendered lens? This is a really, really fascinating topic. So let's say you have a woman running for office and her campaign strategist is a man. If he's crafting that strategy through a gendered lens, how does that affect her messaging and her marketing and the candidate's appearance? It's a really fascinating topic. We also talk about the blue wave and the pink wave and whether there are any blind spots in the campaigns. We also talk about COP, the Center for American Women in Politics. It's an organization that Kelly develops and implements research for in relation to gender and politics. They have a really important project called Gender Watch 2018, in which a team of experts are analyzing the 2018 campaigns in real time so that candidates, strategists, and constituents can better understand how gender shapes political campaigns. If you love politics, strategy, and women running for office, you're going to really geek out in this episode. So here's my conversation with Kelly Dittmar. Kelly Dittmar, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So I want to talk about your book, Navigating Gendered Terrain. And the premise of the book and your work is essentially that campaign strategies are being crafted, but they're being done so through the lens of the political professionals that surround a given politician. And you describe campaigns as being gendered institutions. What do you mean by that? How are campaigns gendered institutions? Yeah, I think when we think about campaigns, more often we're thinking about winning or losing any given election. Uh, But if we think about campaigns as gendered institutions, we think of the ways that gender sort of functions in campaigns. And it does so in many ways, right? It's in how voters evaluate candidates. Uh, They look at candidates through the lens of gender stereotypes and stereotypes around candidacy. Um, what do we expect to see in a candidate? Often those things are aligned with men and masculinity because that's what we've seen for so long. So they're gendered in that way in terms of candidate evaluation. But they're also gendered in the ways in which candidates perform gender or navigate the gendered terrain itself. And to think of examples of that, you think about candidate strategy. Um, what sort of rhetoric are they using? How are they presenting themselves, even to the point of what they're wearing? What sort of behaviors are are they engaged in? Are they throwing the football? Um, or are they going to uh, meetings with young girls and, and women? And what does that tell us? And so in all of these decisions, candidates are pretty calculated about the ways in which they're engaging with gender stereotypes. Sometimes they don't even realize the extent to which they're doing it, but they're very aware that the norm in politics has been masculinity. And so how do they navigate that, uh, especially in the case of women, 
who come to politics as somebody sort of apart from the norm still to this day in politics. Right. So you open talking about the 2008 primary, right? And I think Mark Penn was the strategist on Clinton's campaign, right? Mm -hmm. And an example that you that you gave in the book, he said that the American people didn't want a mama in chief. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a really great example of how a strategy can become gendered. So what are some other examples in that 2008 campaign that were examples of this? Yeah, I mean, the the Mark Penn example is such a clear example of somebody on the campaign team not quite understanding how campaigns are gendered, right? So his point was, the country's not ready for a first mama president, but my favorite line, (laughs) they're ready for a first father president that's a woman. In other words, if, if a candidate just, if a female candidate just proves that she's man enough for the job, then she can be successful. And so what that demonstrates to me is an impetus of certain strategists, particularly in this case, a male strategist to say, put aside any uniqueness, any distinctiveness that your gender brings, your experience as a woman, the ways in which you might approach this campaign differently because you've lived life as a woman in the United States. Put that aside because what the country's really asking for is for you to adapt to the norms that have been at play for so long in presidential politics. And so how did we see that on the campaign trail? We saw Hillary Clinton repeatedly say things in 2008 like, I'm not running as a woman, I'm running as the most qualified candidate. She used campaign slogans like ready to lead. She did the 3 a.m. ad, if you remember that, where it was about, you know, security and I'm going to be ready to answer the call at 3 a.m. And what that was trying to do in some ways was dispel any notion that as a woman, she wouldn't be strong or tough enough to do the job. But in portraying those sorts of traits and in those sorts of strategies, what she lost was things like her authentic self. She had been somebody who had worked on issues around women's equality and empowerment for her whole life and her whole professional career. And most of that fell by the wayside in the campaign because the strategy guiding her and guiding the campaign was not to focus on the fact she was a woman and to, in fact, try to stay away from the fact she was a woman in this campaign. Yeah. Uh, you know, actually, I remember in one moment, very clearly, it was mm-hmm. during one of the mm-hmm. debates and someone asked her, you know, that, that question about likability, which I hate that question, right? But they asked, why do your opponents <laughs> dislike you or something to that effect? And, you know, is it because you're a woman? And she said, well, you know, they don't dislike me because I'm a woman. They dislike me because I'm winning, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> which, I mean, that's just so, there's just so much there in that answer. Well, you know, yeah. the part of it is gendered, obviously, right? But it didn't quite work out because in 2016, Did she shift away from that, you know, I'm not running as a woman, I'm just running as, you know, a strong candidate? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, what I really like in terms of the sort of transition or the evolution of Hillary Clinton's strategy from 2008 to 2016 is that while in 2016, she did still, you know, want to prove those stereotypically masculine credentials of, you know, toughness and competence and strength and all of that. She was doing so in a way that also embraced her gender and lived experience as a woman as an asset to the campaign instead of a liability that she had to overcome. And one of my favorite lines, and she didn't say it often, but she said it early on in the campaign. And I think it it did seem to, at least to some extent, guide the campaign was this time around, she said, you know, again, I'm not asking you to vote for me because I'm a woman. I'm asking you to vote for me on the merits. 
But one of those merits is that I'm a woman. And that's a really important shift. And it didn't get a lot of attention. But for somebody like me who looks at how campaigns can guide voters thinking, what it said to me was that she was trying to convey to voters that there is a value added of being a woman. And it's not a biological sort of innate uh, advantage that women bring, but it's the sort of sociological piece. Women live lives that are different than men in the United States. And unless you disagree with that, you can recognize the value of having those experiences at the policymaking table. Yeah. So you talk about women's presentation, right, as crafted by their strategist. But, you know, the clothes that they wear or whether in their campaign ads, their family's present or not. Right. So what are some of the ways in which they present women and their lives that that show you what they're thinking in terms of gender? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's real evolution in this, which is a positive sign, uh, especially as we look to 2018 and how some women in particular are portraying themselves as candidates uh, to the public. We're seeing some shift in these rules of the game, if you will. So historically, uh, campaign practitioners and candidates themselves, particularly women candidates, were reluctant to show young children, for example, in their ads. Why? Because people would ask them, how could you be a governor or a congressperson and also raise your young kids. Um, and so instead of even raising that as an issue, what you would do is not present those kids in an ad. Whereas for male candidates, it was a sign of sort of, I'm the head of household, right? I bring this credential of protecting my family and providing for my family and that therefore that's a the sort of sign that I can also do this job of protecting the nation. That didn't translate as equally for women candidates because of our stereotypes about maternalism and what it means to be a mother. Increasingly, though, we have seen women candidates on the subject of uh, kids in particular start to use motherhood, again, as a credential for office, as something that they bring that's unique and important. And they do so not by just saying, look, I'm a mother and isn't that great and I can empathize with you, though that's valuable with women voters. They use motherhood to say, as a mother, I understand inherently or critically how these policies affect children. And even more so, I'm invested in making sure that our children have a better future. And so you see women sort of translate their motherhood into policy proposals, policy agendas. One of the best examples recently of that is Kelda Royce, who's running in Wisconsin. And you've probably seen a lot of attention to her ad because uh, she's breastfeeding in her ad. And this is a first uh, for campaigns. Um, But I actually think more so than the breastfeeding, while that sort of catches everybody's attention, what's really interesting in the ad is how she ties her being a mother of an infant child to policy that she put forth while she was in the Wisconsin State Legislature, which was around BPA in children's bottles or in infant bottles. Uh, And so in the ad, she's not only showing that she has this experience, direct experience uh, being the mother of an infant, but also how that experience then translated into policymaking. Again, it's a value added of that identity instead of being concerned that it's something that's going to worry voters about voting for you in an election. So that's that's sort of one example. And it's part of what my colleagues at the Barbara Lee Family Foundation have found in the evolution of women's ability to run sort of quote unquote as women, or I would argue sort of as more authentically themselves 
themselves. Uh, and they talk about it as the 360 degree candidate, not just some sort of singular image of what it means to be a woman candidate. And that's a great thing because that allows women to run in ways that don't hide their families or don't hide their personal lives in the ways that they have before. Right. And speaking of men and the way that men run their campaigns, this is what I thought was really interesting about your research. So you talk about that when male candidates run against women specifically, they change their strategy and they consciously reach out to women voters, right? I wasn't really sure what to make of that. I mean, we saw that in 2016. I think Trump said something to the effect of like, no one loves women as much as I do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, you know, but if, but if you look before the campaign, there's, you know, little evidence of, you know, <laughs> standing up for, I, I don't think he's ever given a, a Might just a be fake on, news. Yeah. <laughs> reproductive justice or anything like that. Right. But I just, I just don't really, I'm, I'm kind of cynical. I'm not really sure what to make of that. Yeah. You know, presumably in 2018 and in 2020, we're going to have, you know, female candidates and they're going to be running against men. I mean, what should we as constituents make of that? Yeah, I think we have a responsibility to sort of hold them accountable. So and, and what I mean by that is sort of at the end of the book, I, I talk about this sort of transformative agenda. What would it mean to sort of regender campaigns? And it doesn't mean that men, when they run against women, start talking to women or about issues that are important to women. That's not transformative. That's not revolutionary. That's more pandering, right? Like it's saying, oh, okay, now I have to care about this. What I would argue for and what I think you are seeing increasingly but slowly is mainstreaming issues that are important to women or messages that matter most to women voters and importantly, a diversity of women voters because there's no singular message or singular set of issues that matter to women, but mainstreaming them to the, the primary priorities of a campaign, a male or a female candidate's campaign. Uh, so this means, for example, that you're not only talking about equal pay in front of groups women, but that you're talking about equal pay as an economic issue that matters to everybody. So you're talking about it at every campaign rally, not just when you're meeting with women. Um, the other thing that men do that I mentioned in the book that is very common is to use female surrogates. So when they are going to speak to or about women, they bring their wives, their spouses, or you know, a, a female supporter that endorsed them to sort of speak on the issue for them. Donald Trump did this all of the time. He very rarely spoke directly to issues that matter to women. He would have Ivanka or one of his daughter-in-laws speak about issues like the very few times they talked about paid leave or something like that. He said very little about those issues. Uh, at the convention, the same was true. Any mention of quote-unquote women's issues were left for women to speak to. There is a value in any campaign of bringing authentic voices on, on issues that matter, you know, to people of color, to women, etc. So I don't want to discount that. But there's also, it, it veers into sort of ignoring or niching those issues when you as the candidate don't speak directly to them. And so I think pushing men to think about issues that might have traditionally been thought of as women's issues, as issues that are important to everybody and seeing them raise them throughout the campaign is, is really valuable and important to actually seeing campaigns be more transformative in terms of what we value, what we find important, and, and what shapes voters' decisions. Yeah, I, for some reason, that point I find particularly bothersome, right? Because as a woman of color, as a Black woman, mm -hmm. I see it happen all the time. Sure. And, you know, and pandering to women. And it is, it is pandering. But I, I feel as if, you know, during 2016 or during previous elections, when you try to point that out, 
out and, you know, say that, well, you weren't looking at this person's history. Like that's the real proof as to, you know, whether this is pandering or if this is an issue that they understand needs attention. I think it bothers me the most when people kind of fall for it. I think. Yeah. And I think, you know, look, women have to be careful about this too, I should say. Right. So women candidates in the same way shouldn't be only talking about these issues in front of certain audiences. And I think you raise a really important issue about women of color in particular. And I think Hillary Clinton struggled with this, um, which was she she was trying to speak to groups of women of color, to black women. Um, she had the mothers of the movement as a sort of vital part of her campaign. She, she made efforts particularly targeted to Latinas, but some of them failed and some of them were more successful. And I think she was working through that and her campaign was working through how to do that, how to speak to distinct and targeted communities of women and raise issues that are important to them while bringing sort of authentic voices to that discussion, but not standing aside and saying, you all figure it out and I support you, but saying, I want to be part of figuring it out with you. And that's hard. That's terrain that, you know, candidates haven't really grappled with in really substantive ways. Um, I think her campaign, again, was an example of of working through that. And you could sort of point to ways in which it worked and ways in which it didn't. But that's the direction that we need to go in if our candidates and our campaigns are going to actually speak to the sort of wide diversity of people that they're trying to represent and people and voters whom they're trying to sort of attract in their campaigns. So that brings another point up for me, a women of color. So when you have campaigns yep. of, you know, female politicians, of women of color who are running, mm-hmm. do you, have you done any research on how those strategies are, are shaped? Yeah. So this is one of those, this is an area of research that is as sort of significant gaps in, in what we know about what works specifically for different groups, women sort of standing at the intersections of different race and, and gender identities. Uh, the same is true if you look at um, the dearth of research on sexual orientation or gender identity and how that plays out in campaigns. You know, what we can point to thus far, you know, is more of the sort of examples of women who've done it, as well as some of the research on gender and race stereotypes that often are done separately, right? They sort of isolate how does gender function and how does race function. And so it's not a great measure, but it does lead us to think about things, for example, for, uh, for black women, thinking about how aggression, right, is taken into account. So stereotypes about the angry black woman, they come into play in campaigns. Um, so how yeah. do you navigate that? We, when my In the book, I talk more generally about aggression and women and how that might be a challenge. But that's going to be a particularly different dynamic for Black women because of these historic stereotypes and tropes of Black women. Interestingly, in some communities, that is going to be a benefit because it's going to represent sort of that strength that not all women are attributed with by voters, right? Like, I'm strong, I'm independent. And we've actually seen that be quite beneficial for some women of color. But of course, for other voters, it's going to cause them to sort of step back. And so I think what we need is research that not only looks at the intersections of race and gender for the candidate, but also looks at the intersections of race and gender of the voter, because their exposure to different communities and the degree to which they apply these stereotypes because they don't know people of different groups or identities um, is going to factor in here. The research overall is fairly slim. I will say 
One of the other points of research for women of color in particular that I think is important is more about the sort of structural challenges that might be at play for women of color that's not the same for for white women. Uh, And those include financial infrastructure. So do they have access to the same financial support networks? You see right now when we're looking at Stacey Abrams running in Georgia, this is a really interesting example. She talks pretty openly about her own financial struggles as something, not that it's unique to the Black community, but her story and the story particularly about her parents and the housing crisis That is something that disproportionately affected Black Americans. And then how does that translate into fundraising and creating a war chest for a campaign? All of these things add up to hurdles um, that might prevent a woman of color from running in the first place and then from being successful. The other piece is our research on recruitment has shown that women of color are more likely to be discouraged from running than women generally, uh, or than white women. And so what does that mean? Well, we already know it takes a lot to get a woman to run for office more than it takes to get a man to run for office. So add in this discouragement, and will that cause more women of color not to run? Interestingly, the candidacy rates among women of color, particularly black women, have been increasing and are actually disproportionate to all these potential barriers. Um, And my friend Wendy Smooth calls this the paradox of participation. So despite all the indicators that would say otherwise, Black women are running and winning at rates that are are pretty high compared to white women. What does that tell us then? It tells us that if they didn't have all those barriers, those numbers could be even greater and we could get to actual representativeness uh, in terms of, you know, equality between their proportion of the population and their proportion of elected officials. Yeah, actually, there's a there's a chapter in your book where you talk about campaign insiders and how they influence the success of a given campaign, right, yeah. based on their gender stereotypes. And I hadn't thought about that in relation to women of color. So it determines that that gender lens determines how much support they get, you know, how much funding they get, you know, if they think that a woman is going to be a strong candidate. And I would imagine that those barriers, like you've just said, are even greater for women of color. Especially at the recruitment phase. Uh, my colleague Kirsten Mamatu's book on party leaders, she talks about party leaders as gatekeepers because they basically decide who they think is viable. Right. Um, and this becomes a huge issue, particularly for women of color, because historically we've seen women of color be successful in majority minority districts, in Congress and in state legislatures. And that's great. And their success there is is enormous. I mean, there are incumbents in Congress, you know, win over and over again from these districts. Um, That's actually why Black women are amongst the most senior women in Congress. However, in order to expand those numbers and expand women's representation, they have to be recruited and supported in non-majority minority districts, right? There's a finite number of those districts throughout the country. And also, if you're not recruiting them in, in majority white districts, that means you're also not recruiting and supporting them as statewide candidates, whether for the U.S. Senate or for statewide executive office. Again, that's why we've only had 11 Black women ever elected to statewide executive office. 11 historically. That's incredible, right? And so it shows that there's a lot more work that needs to be done. And it's not because the women themselves can't do it or can't be successful. It's because the powers that be, for the most part, don't see them as being able to attract voters across the state and particularly to attract enough white voters to be successful.
So I want to talk a bit about COP, the Center for American Women in Politics. And you have a project, Gender Watch 2018. Can you tell us about the project and what your goal is between now and November? Sure. So Gender Watch 2018 is a collaboration between the Center for American Women in Politics and the Barbara Lee Family Foundation. Uh, and the mission of the project is to track, analyze, and illuminate gender dynamics in the 2018 election. And this draws from a project we did in 2016 called Presidential Gender Watch, where we basically took the same approach. What we realized in previous elections was that a lot of the conversation around gender in an election was really focused on women candidates and how many are, are running and how many are winning. And there was very little discussion about the many, many other ways in which gender was at play in the campaign. So some of the things we've talked about already, you know, how are voters evaluating candidates differently along gender lines? How informative are gender stereotypes to voter evaluations or to media coverage? How are candidates navigating gender in their own campaigns? And so in this this cycle, as we did in 2016, what we try to do is sort of look at how those gender dynamics are informing campaigns and campaign strategy, how they are influencing or not results, right? So we will also pay attention to how many women are running and winning, but that's just one part of the story. And in order to look at the sort of the complexity of gender in the race, we brought on this time 11 expert contributors. And these are scholars and practitioners who either engage in research on gender, race, and politics, or are sort of on the ground doing this work and have particular experience and understanding of gender in campaigns. And so the scholars come from a variety of institutions and backgrounds, and they write up analyses for us for our blog and weigh in in other ways when we sort of engage with these questions and conversations. So we've got some videos on the website of conversations between myself and our experts. We've got our analyses. We keep track of the news on our social media feeds so that we can point people to stories that are looking at these gender dynamics in a more complex way. And again, really just trying to inform the dialogue about gender in the election in real time so that we can sort of enrich it so that it's not ignoring some key ways in which gender is functioning. Right. Actually, that was my next question. I was going mm -hmm. to ask you, how quickly can you apply these analyses, right? You know, I mean, how quickly can you turn around what you've learned yeah. to help, I guess, even in the primaries. You know, yeah. Yeah. So speaking of which, there have been a number of primaries already. So, so what do you see in the primaries that we've already had? Yeah, and I, and I should say for Gender Watch, you know, how quickly we turn around, uh, I don't sleep a lot. So, <laughs> so we try to turn it around really quickly in the primaries to keep some sort of sanity. What we have done is said, in terms of Gender Watch's analysis of primaries, we are going to look at sort of gender breaks of candidates and then sort of post facto ahead of time, we're doing the more broader look at sort of how they ran. But we are doing some of these basic number crunching for women running in the primaries. Uh, and so we do an outlook for every state before the primary that usually goes up on our site, you know, four or five days before the primary. And then the day after the primaries, we do a sort of roundup. How did women fare in particular in these primaries? And also look at it in comparison to men. And I think that's really important in this cycle. What we've seen across the primaries that have happened thus far is a real range of sort of how, quote unquote, well women have done. 
So uh, in last week's primaries, there was a lot of attention to Pennsylvania, where you saw a number of women be successful, especially in races that are winnable in November. And so these were women who are now going to be running as Democrats in, in likely Democratic districts. So Pennsylvania will go from a state that's had zero women in Congress to hopefully three, four, five, you know, women in Congress next cycle. That showed a lot of progress. By the same token, however, the week before, we were talking about women in Ohio um, and other states, West, uh, West Virginia, where the women who won, there were a number of women who won and who were successful, but they're going to be running as Democrats in very red districts in November. And so the story is not as optimistic about gains that we'll see in those states. And then we had a state like Illinois a couple weeks before that, where we really didn't see any significant gains for women in terms of nominees and, and unlikely gains in November. So I think the story is not a singular one of sort of how women are doing in 2018 when it comes to the numbers, because the numbers are very much dependent on where women are running and the political context of those races. So Pennsylvania is quite unique because we've got new districts in the state. We've made districts much more competitive than they normally are in a non-redistricting year. And so it allows for these sorts of opportunities. In most other states this cycle, we won't see the same level of competitiveness for the Democratic women who are running. And I should add that the majority, almost all of the surge in women's candidacies this cycle, particularly for the U.S. House, is coming from Democratic progressive women. So many of them are running in districts that are quite red, quite favorable to Republicans. And many of them are also running against each other in primaries. So we'll see that sort of winnowing out of those numbers as we get to November. Right. I, I was yeah. reading, I think it was an essay that you'd written about, you know, being cautious about this, you know, this pink wave. And I'm cautious too. Maybe we're cautious for different reasons. But is it primarily because they're running against incumbents? They're running in red states? Like, where does your caution come from? It's a couple of things. It's first that they're dominantly Democrats. Um, and so yeah. um, we always argue at the center that we're never going to get to parity in American politics if we only see women's success and progress on one side of the aisle. So there's a, a challenge when we don't have enough Republican women running and winning. It means that all those really strongly red districts are not going to be represented by women. And so that has continued this cycle. Republican women are sort of right around 10% of all Republican candidates running for the U.S. House. That's far too, far too low to see significant gains. On the Democratic side, then, yes, there's more women running and that's wonderful. But the caution comes from one, that they're running against each other. So in in the 5th District in Pennsylvania, I think you had seven women running total, six or seven women running, I think six in a Democratic primary. And so at the end of that primary, you lost five women candidates, right? Um, and so yeah. I'm all for women running against each other. That's a point of progress. But if we're calculating the numbers come November, we have to be cognizant that we're going to lose some. And then to your point about, you know, is it that they're running in red districts? Yes. So there's been a, a lot of different analyses. The New York Times just did an analysis. We've done some of our own looking at what sort of districts these women are running in. So even if they are successful in gaining their primary nomination or their nomination for the general election, what are their chances in November? And a lot of the women that are running and even the ones that are winning, we're seeing going to face a real sort of steep uphill climb and being successful in November. That does not mean they shouldn't run. It doesn't mean that there isn't value in their candidacy. There's incredible value in them running. And we can talk about 
what that is, but it also means they might not win this time and that this is a long game that we need to make sure that they stay in and are willing to run in the future. And so our sort of caution also comes from the fact that what we don't want to happen is come November, you know, women make modest gains in Congress and the narrative is that they failed. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. the because everybody had been saying they were supposed to, you know, it was supposed to be the year of the woman. We were supposed to see these massive gains. And then if they don't, if they don't achieve them, will it be sort of put on women that they were unsuccessful? And I think that would be a really unfair conclusion because a lot of the dynamics that are going to shape how well women do are well out of their control. Yeah. So the reason I'm cautious is because I think what I've discovered is that, <laughs> you know, we're, we live inside of a bubble <laughs> of politically obsessed people, right? The blue wave kind of exists in a bubble, but whenever I step out of it, they aren't talking about the same things that we're talking about, right? Whenever you step mm-hmm, outside of the mm-hmm. bubble, blue wave gets mm-hmm. a little shorter, right? <laughs> it gets a little less intense. Um, so that's why why I'm cautious. Um, were you going to say something about that? Well, no, I mean, I was just going to, I think that's right. I think that, yeah, part of it is the hype, right? We all like to hype something that's going to happen. Um, I also think even in the moments, um, there's a lack of, in an effort to tell a story, especially a media narrative, and this is partly why Gender Watch exists, is to sort of check the media narrative. So in an effort to tell a story yeah. that's fun to tell, right? It's great to talk about the pink wave. That's catchy. Let's talk about the tsunami of women. Isn't that particularly powerful in a moment where, you know, women are calling men to task on bad behavior? Sure, all of that is. And it's 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 fun to sort of tell that story of women's empowerment. But if we if we sort of get caught up in the wave, if you will, um, we miss out on the very clear sort of statistics. So even before we do the calculation in November, let's look at the proportion of all candidates that are women. It is still about 22 to 23% of House candidates are women. So there's still a significant underrepresentation. More men are running. And so you know, it is easy to get caught up in. And it's not only sort of just inaccurate, but it's also, again, sort of dangerous if we get the story wrong come November. Right, right. And so speaking of the the reasons behind what people perceive as the as the pink wave, I think you kind of alluded to, you know, me yeah. too, and maybe you alluded to yeah, it. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> or I don't know if you're familiar with the survey by PRRI, the Public Religion Research Institute. A survey came out about how Americans, how they perceive sexual harassment in relation to their voting intentions, right? And I found this really depressing, right? So basically, the survey uncovered that gender and sexual harassment was no match Uh to partisanship when it came to Uh predicting how a particular voter would vote, right? In relation to Congress, at least, right? So that was kind of depressing to me that partisanship trumped everything. You very nicely set me up to say, this is something that we've analyzed for Gender Watch. So um, (laughs) Melissa Deckman, who's one of our expert contributors, uh, is actually uh, the head of the board for PRRI. And so when this data came out, what she did for Gender Watch is sort of break it down in terms of particularly women voters um, and how attitudes about sexual harassment varied by both party and sex. And she could demonstrate, of course, what you've already noted, which is that party is a real sort of motivator on perceptions of sexual harassment, particularly questions about if you think sexual harassment is a serious problem, and if so, sort of 
who or what is to blame. And so Republican women or men thinking about it as, you know, sexual harassment as a misunderstanding or thinking about the uh, frequency of false accusations, right? And there are real partisan and gender differences at play here. And so she sort of breaks that down for her analysis on our site, which I think is really valuable and illuminates the diversity among women voters. And this is another thing that I think often the media gets wrong because they talk about women voters, quote unquote, as sort of monolithic block. They miss out on all the diversity that is not new among women voters, you know, that has existed, but is, again, less easy to talk about. So talking about the conservative women and their perceptions, not only on issues generally, but on gender related issues is really important for us to then understand how these issues are going to play in elections. It also prevents us from being shocked when, you know, the majority of white conservative women vote for Donald Trump. That's not surprising if you had looked at the history of women's voting patterns and beliefs and sort of broken it down that way. But it was surprising to so many people because the narrative had been, well, women voters writ large, support women's issues, vote Democratic, etc. Well, that's actually never been true in an aggregate way, um, you know, if you sort of looked at the complexities of it, but, you know, it's easier to talk about in that fashion. So I think those findings about sexual harassment are really valuable. And another one of our expert contributors, uh, Aaron Cassess, also did an analysis of similar questions around sexual harassment as they related to vote choice in 2016, and basically found similar things. That Republican women voters, particularly those who voted for Donald Trump, have very different perceptions about gender equity um, and gender problems and, and or gender inequity, and also express what they talk about as sexist beliefs that you normally would associate or would more commonly associate with men, but they're often aligned with partisanship. Because it looks like independent voters on this issue are more aligned with Democrats. And you say that that's an opening, or at least the analysis says that that's an opening for Democratic campaigns. So sure. I mean, I think independent voters are always sort of the place where both parties are looking to see if they can make gains. And so if you see an issue that sort of veers closer to yours, so in this case, do concerns about sexual harassment resonate with independent voters, then that may be a place where Democrats can sort of raise that issue as a campaign issue that is persuade, you know, persuades the persuadables. So you might see sort of from those sorts of findings, Democratic candidates more likely to even raise the issue of sexual harassment or Me Too in their campaigns than you would Republican candidates. I think this is also true of Republican women. So I've been asked a lot of times about like, well, how will Republican women, will they also talk about Me Too on the campaign trail in the ways that we've seen Democratic women do it in campaign ads or in campaign speeches? We'll see. And they could because it isn't a partisan issue or it shouldn't be. Right. But it has become partisan in the ways in which folks talk about sort of the policy prescription or the cause of the problem. And in particular, I do think this issue also puts 
Republican women in particular sort of bind because they're also running on a party ticket where the top of that ticket, not in this election, but the sort of head of party, Donald Trump, has been accused and sort of been on tape um, engaging in this sort of misogynistic behavior. <laughs> and so if they go out on the campaign trail saying, I'm going to address sexual harassment and, you know, this this disparity in power, the quick response and rebuttal is, well, are you going to start with your own president? And so I think it's a little bit harder for Republicans writ large. And I think this data shows that addressing that issue and sort of making it a primary issue may not benefit them much on the campaign trail unless they're trying to appeal to these independents. But in doing so, they sort of risk maybe marginalizing some of their own voters. Whereas for Democrats, it may motivate their voters as well as attract some of those independents. Right. It's funny you said he's sort of been on tape. He definitely has been on tape. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, he has been on tape using misogynistic language and admitting to sexual assault. So, yeah, it makes it quite hard for anybody to to say that their party is going to work for this issue. We saw that not only... We're not only seeing that in 2018, we saw it in 2016. And I do think whether right or wrong, um, women are sort of held to a higher standard on that. So Republican women are asked more often about that issue because it's presumed to be an issue that affects women more significantly. I mean, it does affect women more significantly in the populace, but there's an expectation that women candidates will sort of care more about it. And so they're more likely, I think, to face some of that challenge than male candidates who are less likely to be asked about it at all. Okay. So, you know, it's it's May, end of May. And so I think we have less than six months left. And I, I know that your group is nonpartisan, but I'm yeah. a Democrat and I'm very nervous. What should strategists be doing right now in preparation for November and what should candidates be doing? I think it's it's not getting complacent, right? So it is easy, especially for Democrats, I think, you know, to get caught up in the, the wave, get caught up in the narrative that they're going to take all these seats. And I think what good practitioners and candidates do is sort of block out that noise and assume the worst, you know, assume that it's going to be yeah. really difficult. And I think to your point about the bubble, it also means staying out of the bubble or at least getting out of the bubble to see that there are a lot of Americans that support this president, that support this administration, that support the Republican Party in Congress. And so while, you know, your circle might think we're in some outrageous era and of course everybody's going to vote these people out, that's just not what history tells us to be true. And so I think practitioners you know, behooves them to stay really diligent and never, never make those assumptions. When it comes to, to gender, you know, I think it's twofold. One is, again, not to sort of get caught up in the wave, to think about the ways in which uh, using this moment and using the energy around women in particular might benefit their campaigns is smart and they should do that, right? Think about messages that resonate with women and men voters. But they also, I, I would hope, and this is the harder part, you know, this is the prescription that I make in the book that consultants roll their eyes at, which is to also think about the ways in which their decisions and their strategies are impacting voters' perceptions of candidacy in the long term. And so what are the ways in which they can push the boundaries yeah. a little bit in our thinking about what a candidate looks like or how they behave? And I, I'm really excited to see that we're seeing candidates do that this cycle. They're taking risks 
you know, that are sort of political or electoral risks, but are in the long term, I think, going to expand the pool of candidates and the sort of strategies that candidates can use to be successful. So it's not only breastfeeding in a campaign ad, but it's a male candidate, you know, talking differently about his own fatherhood and how that might be a credential, not because he's a provider, but because he was going to his kids' soccer practices and understands what it's like to balance that with doing a job, just like we've talked about women doing for so long. Um, it's it's about the you know gubernatorial candidate in Maryland, Rich Madaleno, who presented his family, which is you know his husband and his black children, uh, black adopted children. As normal, right? That, that that this is this is a new image and a new uh, model for candidacy and yeah. holding. Those things really help us to push the boundaries. And again, regardless of whether or not those candidates win, that's a measure of success uh, for their candidacies because they've helped to to sort of change what we all collectively think of uh, when we think of a candidate for political office. So, what do we look for during the midterms? What should we be watching out for? And and how do we measure success? I think measuring campaign success. In, in multiple ways. One is how many women, you know, how many women and men win or lose. And the other is, you know, how much of these candidacies really disrupted the prevailing rules of the game so that more people can enter campaigns and be successful. There are so many people who don't even think about running for office because they don't see people like them and they don't think that it's a place in which they would be welcome or successful. And the only way we change that is by sort of providing them symbolically an image or a representation of difference, of diversity among our candidates, and then even better seeing those candidates be successful. So I think we're getting there. And I think that one other thing to note in this cycle for women in particular is to watch for the places where women have the potential to make history. So Paulette Jordan, you know, became the first Native American woman to ever win a nomination for governor already in Idaho. And Stacey Abrams may well win on Tuesday to become the first Black woman nominee for governor ever. Either of them would be the first Democratic woman of color to be governor. We've never elected a Democratic woman of color to governor. And so thinking, you know, the other thing that we'll be watching for this cycle are those those ways in which we're chipping away at some of these dominantly white male spaces. And that work isn't going to happen in one election. But I think we are going to see some progress this time. Yeah. Representation matters. That's right. <laughs> so much. Uh, well, I hope everyone is listening to you. I hope every single, you know, campaign with a, you know, woman or male candidate, they're listening to you right. and, and looking at your research. So Kelly Dittmar, thank you so much for your work. And thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for the conversation and for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a supporter of the electorate visit us at electorate.com and click on the donation link at the top of the page. The electorate is now available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher. Please consider subscribing using your favorite podcast platform. Also, please like us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash electorate. And until next time, keep up the good fight. <laughs>